Well, I've been away uh, for a little bit. I've been in the cusp on holiday, floating around in hot springs. So if I seem all glowing, that's why. Uh, and, and then this last week, I was at Green Bay Bible Camp doing the Bible readings there. So I think this is about my 16th sermon this week. So, uh, so you're in for it. Um, if you're joining us, because I did say to all the Green Bay families, because I promised I was, I, I thought I had, I was going to speak longer and I'd get to Job and I was going to teach Job to them. But I said, we ran out of time, uh, having uh, I taught through the, um, the messages that we've been doing, uh, Abraham and, um, and Joseph, of course, and Joshua, and, and the journey that we've been on, on this, on this kind of epic series through the summer while we're coming in and out. So now I've got Job and sharing uh, with you, with Job in, the, in that journey. Uh, if you're new to Willow Park Church, you'll notice that at the end of the service and the final song, I'll disappear. That's not because the Lord has returned um, and you've all been left behind. It's because... Um, uh, I've been supporting our South community and campus and going down there to preach uh, for 11.30. Their service starts at 11 o'clock. We are one church, four locations, six congregations. So this weekend I'm preaching four times at Pursuit again this evening and at South. And so I'll be going, leaving to go to South for that. So it's not because I don't like you, because I really do. In fact, um, this will be the last time that we will do this because as of September, uh, the South community moves back to 10 a.m. Uh, Glenn steps back as full-time uh, community and campus pastor of our South community. So that enables me to be present here where I'm the campus pastor, uh, to be with you and to uh, and greet you at the end and shake your hand. So I'm excited about that, uh, that, we can, that we go through that shift and that, that, that change uh, uh, that will take place. We're looking at Job, and as we look at Job, uh, turn with me if you've got your Bibles to Job chapter 1. And we'll start at verse 6. One day the angel came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, and also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Interesting in the narrative that Satan appears and comes, probably as an angel of light. Uh, maybe the other angels didn't recognize him. And yet, of course, you can never get anything by the Lord. And Satan answered to the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. You get an idea of what Satan is up to here. Roaming, creating havoc, creating problems and difficulties. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that... His flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. 
We could read our way through Job. I have read Job and worked and thought about Job over the last week and submerged myself in the text. There's some things I want to do in terms of context for Job. It is the most ancient of the writings in Scripture. One thing I want to explain also about Job is that Job is a poetic narrative. Do I believe Job existed? Yes, I do. Do I believe that a man called Job went through and faced what the scriptures said? Yes, I do. Do I look at the construct of the narrative as you look at it and understand how it's constructed? It is constructed in the ancient tradition and the great ancient way of a poetic utterance. Its rhythm, its, its, its construct is poetic. You can think of it like the great classics, like, like Homer's Odyssey. It has a narrative and a power and a poetic strength, and it draws upon the ancient way of communicating, which is through using the rhythm of debate, that you have Job and you have debate that takes place. So we need to remember that. And the best way to enjoy Job, if you want to enjoy it, of course, is to read it out loud or to listen to it online with somebody who who has a rich uh, and varied approach to enunciate is, is, is such a glorious way of listening. I've been listening to it all week. I've been, I've been submerging myself in it. And you can hear the rhythm and the poetry and the debate and the going backwards and forth on the story of Job. We get some things wrong, though, with Job. First of all, we get the idea that Job is complicated. No, Job is not complicated. The story is actually quite straightforward and simplistic. The actual prose, however, and the depth of the prose and the narrative is gloriously rich and has this power and this life, this poetic power behind it. The story is quite simple. As much as there's a righteous man, Job, who enters a trial of great testing beyond we can imagine, he travels through this testing and in the process he questions God, he becomes angry with God. One of the misconceptions is that Job is blameless and perfect all the way through. He's not actually. But then he has three friends that arrive who... We call friends, but aren't, you know, if you, the saying comes to mind. If you have friends like these, who needs enemies? I mean, they gather around him and then they proceed to kick him in. And so they, they, they criticize him and they tear him to pieces. And so the narrative is, is that, that they keep saying, you know, Job, you must have done something wrong. Job is saying, I've done nothing wrong. God is unjust in this, and yet God is just. And at the end of the story, Job realizes his own journey. He gets, repents towards God. He blesses his friends, and God's presence attends to their relationship, and prosperity is given back, and, and he prospers again greater than he was before. So it is this this narrative of a man struggling with a trial and trying to make sense of what is going on and what is taking place. Now I'm going to talk about trials and difficulties. I'm going to talk about suffering. I'm going to talk about the battles that we have. 
And I want to talk to you as a pastor and as a shepherd's heart. Why? Because I travel with so many of you and know so many of you so well know that you, in your own journeys, have traveled through pain and trials and difficulties. And the one thing I won't kind of do is brush that off because you know, even in my journey and your journey, we follow and travel through times of sufferings and pain. So I don't want to be clumsy, although I fear I will be at moments. I know that where you're at in your journey, it may be difficult. Because some of you are traveling through difficult times of sickness. Some of you are traveling through times of of financial stress and anxiety. Some of you come to Willow Park Church because it is a safe place, because at this moment you're traveling through a relational breakdown and a problem that is taking place. Life is not straightforward. Life is full of pain and full of difficulty. And as we step in to some of five little principles that I want to draw out, and I can't unpack the whole of Job in the journey that we're in, but I want to bring some truths uh, to this, and I also want to remind you that I look at Job through the view of the cross and the view of Jesus Christ. I look here in the cross and I look backwards to the story of Job through the lens of the work of Jesus and the heart of Jesus. And anything in our new covenant is worked out of relationship. It's worked out of a relationship with God. And one thing I will say is that we have to look at his trial and look at our lives. And the one thing that we can't do is kind of go, oh, Job went through all of this. Uh, This is terrible. Could I go through this in the same way as Job? Well, we all go through trials. But you can't own Job. You can't allow yourself to step into fear. So where are we going to start on this journey? Well, the question I'm asking is, what what does this mean? And this is the question I'm going to keep coming back to again and again. What does it mean? I am in a trial. I am battling. I am traveling through a difficult time. What does this actually mean for me in in this situation? You have a living relationship with God. You have an intimacy with Christ through the cross. You were born of the Spirit and born again. And yet we know we fail. We face trials and difficulties in our lives. I guess I'm, I'm facing one at the moment that brings me to tears regularly because my grandfather, who's 92, is dying at the moment. Now, bless you, because two years ago, you prayed for him and I had an opportunity to pray with him and he recommitted his life to Jesus Christ, which is beautiful. It's never too late. But I'm feeling the anguish of that, feeling the pain of that. We feel the pain and the anguish of it. But there is one place I want to start here, and it's this point, is that, is that God knows. And when we face trials and we face difficulties, I want to encourage you that God knows. That God knows and God cares. That God knows what we go through. God knows what we face. God knows what we we are, are, are going through. The most difficult thing in a trial is this, is that we isolate ourselves. Isolation is the worst thing you can do when you are going through a difficult time. 
To kind of sit in a place and go, nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands what I'm facing. And you isolate yourself and you set yourself aside and you say, nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody cares. Listen, I learned something from this text that Job um, couldn't see what was going on in the heavenlies. And it was this one idea that even though this was the toughest of times, God knew what he was going through. And I want to encourage you that when you are going through difficult times in the New Testament, with all that Jesus taught, I want to encourage you in your darkest time, God knows what you are going through at the moment. Not only does God know what you're going through, but God utterly cares for you. What does Jesus say? He says... He says, the father knows even when a sparrow falls to the ground. The detail of a sparrow dropping to the ground. Do you know how many sparrows there are in the world? I do. I've done my research. I've counted them. There are 7 billion sparrows in the world, which is amazing because scientists tell me that for every sparrow there is usually a human being and for every human being there is a sparrow. Isn't that lovely? Interesting. It's as if this is inspired by God. But when he says, I know every sparrow, he's saying, listen, I know what you face. I know what you go through. And when we go through times of suffering and pain, maybe this can counterbalance the isolation, the the panic that we feel like we've been kidnapped by a situation and we've been taken off and now we're in this cell, this this prison cell of my, my pain and my agony of all that is taking place in life. Listen to me. Let me tell you something. Through Christ and the cross, God knows what you are traveling through and God has not abandoned you. He is with you. It's tough. Say, what do you mean, Phil? Well, let let me show you a scripture here. Let me take you to Hebrews 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Look at that word, empathize. It's a lovely word, to be empathetic, to to understand what and place yourself in the shoes of somebody else. It's a very important gift for a pastor to have. Empathy. It's an important thing for us to all practice. You know, a pastor without empathy is probably called an evangelist. And <laughs> But a pastor without empathy, and I, I, I do have an evangelistic gift, but I, 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 I know, but this is empathy. To empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Who was this one who empathized with us? And understand, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time. Time of need. 
God knows, God sees, God understands what you're going through. And, and when we follow, because we are in relationship with God, it is not like the Old Testament where the Spirit rested on prophets and kings and priests alone and spoke to the nation. Now we are a nation of prophets and priests and kings. We are a people who God has called us and saved us. You and I are children of the living God and we have access to approach God's throne with confidence because of what Christ Jesus did upon the cross by giving his life for the sins of the world. So how does this help me in trial? Well, it helps me that when I am broken and I'm traveling through dark times of pain, that rather than in Job's narrative where you get the feel that Job isn't connecting with heaven, and there's things going on in the heavenlies, and there in the narrative he has, he's disorientated. This teaches me that Jesus has enabled me to come into the very presence of God with a high priest who sees and knows my pain. Will you learn to know that you are in relationship with the Lord and he sees and knows your pain? And will you bring the darkest of times into the throne room in your relationship with him and ask the Lord to minister and whisper to you and help you through that journey? Because my belief is utterly that the Lord will travel with you. I mean, Job, you know, said this to his wife. He replied, you are, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not accept trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He, he was willing to understand that there is good times and there are times of trouble. I don't advise you to speak to your wife like this, by the way. <laughs> Men, this is not the way to address. Although she did just say to him, Oh, Job, why don't you curse God and die? Uh, I don't advise any ladies to talk to your husband like that. Do you understand? But there's a sense that there is a rhythm in life that we do experience good times and troublesome times. We experience high times of blessing. And my friends, we experience times of being utterly broken through times of suffering and challenge and trial and difficulty. But the second point I want to say is God sets the limit. Clearly here, God was still in control. He sets the limit. He's in the middle of the trial. He puts, a, he puts a, a line in the sand and says, Satan, no more. You see, the one thing that Satan cannot do is sneak up on God and surprise him. Because he is sovereign. He is Lord. He is king. And as children of God, I am, am no longer under that, 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 that kind of idea that somehow Satan can, can, can do his will with the believers. No, because yes, there's a hedge around Job, but there's a hedge around you and I. And that hedge is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That hedge is there for us. 
But you can't surprise God. You can't sneak up on God. He's in the center of the trial. And can I encourage you that if at the moment you are traveling through a time of pain, can I encourage you to try and find the presence and the voice and the whisper of God in the time of your trial? Find his voice. Find his meaning. What happens when we suffer? Well, what happens is we seek growth. Growth takes place. Growth starts to happen. And we understand that this, this, this growth it, it, it happens. Now, I know that we encounter God in many ways of how we change. And this is what I've discovered in my own journey. Over, over 30 years of serving Jesus, over 30 years, in fact, in full-time Christian ministry. I am part of the 1965 Brigade and I'm 50. I became a Christian when I was 15. I preached my first sermon when I was 17. And I've served the Lord in full-time ministry since graduating in my early 20s. 21 was my first post. Theologians will tell you that there are three ways in which people get to know God intimately. There's studying, and it's true. Immense study and pouring yourself into study brings you closer to God. There is a crisis experience of an encounter with God. I've been at camps this summer preaching and, and the altars at times are full of people weeping and being touched by God, repenting, filled with the Holy Spirit, salvation. And many of us have been touched by God at camps in our history, 250 of them at, at Garden Lake. Uh, many dozens and dozens and dozens as our own camp, the ark as well. God has been doing that. And then there's suffering. But the truth is, from my experience, that the most deepest, profound moments in my life have been through the times of real pain, where the Lord has come so close to me and ministered to me. where it's left the deepest mark on my character, where it's ministered to me. And as, as Anabaptists, as evangelical Anabaptists, you say, what does that mean? Well, it means that we're free radicals. It means we don't, we don't follow, um, um, a, uh, with respect, a pope or anybody else. We believe that we have God ourselves and the word of God and we walk the way of the Lord in an individual relationship with him in community. And I have this discovered this, that all of us, all of us, at some point in our world, what the old saying in the old tradition from the Great Reformation was, that we all walk the way of the cross in our soul. And you and I walk the way of the cross. We walk the way of the cross. Um, we walk 
Where, what do you mean walk the way of the cross? It means that what we travel through at a period in our life so connects with the narrative of the passion that God is doing a deep walk with us. Where suddenly I find myself connecting with the garden of Gethsemane. I find myself knowing the agony and loneliness of Golgotha. I understand in a deeper way the pain of, of the crucifixion. I see the emptiness of the day and my pilgrimage, I'm talking within us, is so deep and profound that I get a greater revelation of the role of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as I travel through times of trial. Does that make sense? You sit with somebody who really loves Jesus, who it's their time to go home and they're struggling with their sickness. You connect with the root of the cross. You sit with people who have lost in the most profound ways through grief. They're walking the root of the cross. You are, my friends. We walk that journey. And, and all Job wants to do is, is defend himself, is justify himself, is say, I'm, I, I haven't done anything wrong. And his friends come and they say, you must have done something wrong. Look at the way you are. You are a righteous man once, but look at yourself. There's got to be something going on. There's got to be a dirty secret at the bottom of this. And if you want to understand their narrative, basically their narrative is, what is your dirty secret, Job? And get it sorted. You know that kind of theological approach? When you look at somebody and say, you're going through a tough time, it must be your sin. Is unhelpful. It's unhelpful. It's very condemning, very critical, and they use the pros. And all he wants to do is be vindicated, to be justified, to be, to be explained that it's right. And yet, and yet he says, look at me, I'm in a mess. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheep dogs. That's a bit insulting, isn't it? These people are mocking me, how dare them? I wouldn't even put their dads with my sheep dogs. Now, that's an insult, I think. You can tell that Job isn't quite straightforward. By this time at chapter 30. And, and now, those young men mock me in song. I've become a byword among them. They were even writing rhymes and songs about me. What a complete loser I am. I must have done something. I must be unrighteous. They're mocking me. And the whole world is speaking negatively against me. The question is this. Can you learn and I learn something, a redemptive nature, through suffering? Can I learn something? The answer to that is a resounding yes. There's a sanctification process that is taking place in Job's narrative. There's a process that God is doing something deeper called sanctification that is moving in his heart. And yes, but you say, well, well, uh, surely, you know, this is, this is a little bit 
I have to go back and look at Jesus. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. I think we get a picture here that we need fervent prayers and tears are fine when we travel through darkness and difficulty. But it was reverent submission to God that marked Christ in his journey of pain. Son, he was. He learned obedience from what he suffered. What the writer of the Hebrews is teaching us here is something amazing. That even the Son of God through his suffering, learnt something profound. And every time I have suffered, every time I have struggled, every time I've gone through a difficult time, friends, when, I'm, when I keep my heart soft before the Lord, I learn something from that. So when you spend time praying before the Lord, the question I often ask of the Lord through times of turbulent, bumpy, lumpy times in life of agony or difficulty is, Lord, what is your meaning in this? Lord, what is your heart in this? Lord, what are you trying to do? What do you have to say to me in the middle of this? And what is? And I find that as I hear what the Lord may be doing and the Lord may be working in my relationship with him, somehow the problem shrinks and gets smaller and, and my faith starts to grow grow and my determination because God's voice is traveling with me through this this difficulty. Um, Let me push in on this a little bit more. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. And when we follow our journey of trials and testing and difficulty and fire falls from heaven and you're sat in the dust of life and you're feeling it, you know what? There's a sense that that often there's a pruning that can take place in a trial. Absolutely. He prunes what is useless in your life and he prunes what is good in your life so you can bear more fruit. And as you travel through the journey, you ask yourself, Lord, Lord, may I bear more fruit in this journey? May I know your strength? And the danger always is, is is that we get so caught up on the why. Why is this happening? Why is this taking place? This was Job's great narrative in the poetic way. Why? Why is this 
taking place in my life at the moment? Why am I traveling through this? And we love to pigeonhole things. We love to have explanation for everything. We love to get our filofaxes out and our filing cabinets and say, this event happened because of this. And this moment in my life took place because of this. But sometimes I have discovered that there are some things that happen in life that make no sense. They make no sense. It's no sense. And there I have to surrender to the awesomeness and the sovereignty of God and allow the Lord's presence to minister to me because it makes no sense. And, and he said this. This is the message version. I thought it was apt. Think has a truly innocent... And they're, they're saying... To him, well, you must have done something. You must have sown it. His friends are speaking to him. Think, has a truly innocent person ever ended up on the scrap heap? Do generally, uh, generally upright people ever lose out in the end? It is my observation that those who plow evil and sow trouble reap evil and trouble. One breath from God and they will fall apart. One blast of his anger and there is nothing left of them. This was the advice of Job's friends. But it makes no sense. But if we concentrate on the why, it can make us go crazy. But if we concentrate on him on Jesus. You see, it's about trusting in the face of anguish. Can we trust? Job is feeling at this moment, he's feeling completely lost. He is, he's lost. He's, can we trust at that moment when we step out on that bungee jump of life and we feel ourselves falling through that God has got us? Can we trust God as we step out of the aeroplane of, of faith and we're falling through the air and we pull the cord that God will bring a time of silence and bring us down in the right way? Can we trust because this is the challenge that we have through the darkest of times. Do I trust God? Job, do you trust God or do you curse God? Can you trust God and hold on? Job, will you be willing to acknowledge that your, your God is there? And then out of scripture appears this verse. A verse that explodes. Significant, probably one of the most powerful verses in Scripture. It's so, it's this, this verse in the middle of Job is so immense. It's incredible. Yet, I will trust him. I'll trust him. I'll trust him. Come on. Will you trust him through the pain? Will you trust him through the difficulty? Will you trust him? Because that's, I feel like I've been slain. But you know what? Yet I will trust him. 
I will trust him. You feel the rhythm of hope coming in Job. You feel the, the prose speeding up. You feel the prophetic and the, the poetic power erupting through Job as it starts to, starts to build and you see glimmers of light and hope come into the narrative. He then turns and he, he turns and speaks and he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. I I shall see God whom I shall see for myself. Suddenly, Job, although you know, there's many chapters of, of narrative and debate, there's this sense that he's saying, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know him. What's going on in the scripture at this moment? It's, it's Job is, is starting in the narrative to start to see something greater that will answer all the questions. Something amazing that will address every issue. Something incredible. I can feel Jesus coming out of Job. I can feel that there's a sense of something greater going to happen in the cosmos. Something that's going to change the world. Something that's going to answer our questions and bring us closer. And that answer answer is Jesus and the resurrection. That answer is the resurrection of God that is at work. And suddenly, it's like in the poetic prose of, of, of the narrative of the great story, heaven breaks open for a moment and a light shines in. Job wants to die. He wants to go in the, in the grave. And then we have this moment. If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. Look at it. If somebody dies, will they live again? I can tell you the answer to this, yes. Because somebody died, somebody was nailed to the cross, somebody bleeding and took on the scorn and the sinfulness of our world, took on the agony and the pain of human fallenness, took on all of humanity's grief, all of God's wrath upon himself and was laid in a tomb. If somebody dies, will they live again? Yes, they will. Because on the third day, the King of kings and the Lord of lords rose again. That is our hope, my friends. This is the lens that we look forward. It's almost like, Satan, you are defeated. Death, you are vanquished. Sin, you are broken. Because can somebody live again? Yes, they are laid in the ground, but one day the trumpet will sound and the great call of God will come and the dead in Christ shall raise again and everything will be put right. And in the resurrection, glory, we will be renewed again because of what Christ did upon the cross. And throughout the world, Christians live in this hope. It's only in our Western entitlement 
of that everything must be perfect. That if God loves us, it's not going to go right. I've sat in, 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 in slums in Tanzania and Johannesburg. I've been working in Turkey. I've preached around the world, in the third world. I've sat with pastors that months later have been martyred because they love Jesus. I've, I, I read reports today of Christians in Syria being killed one after another. What is their hope in the middle of this pain? What is their hope in the middle of their agony? Their hope is in one thing because he rose again, we will rise again. Our hope is in the resurrection. That's our hope. That's our hope. I am going to live again. I may die in the most difficult of terms. I may travel through the hardest of ways, but the trumpet will sound and God will raise the dead and all will be put right. That's what Christ did. It doesn't answer your situation. The fact that the one you love the most is struggling and deteriorating. For, but it, it should help us to say, yes, Lord, I trust you. Because in the great plan of things, Job saw it. He saw it. He saw that he didn't understand it, but he knew there's an answer. And all the ancient prophets knew there was an answer. And his name is Jesus. So much we could talk about this subject. But when you look at Job, do it through the lens of the cross. Do it through the lens. We live in an age now which is about relationship. You struggle. Don't run away from God in isolation. Run to God through the high priest who empathizes with you and come to the throne of mercy, connect with heaven and try and hear God's voice about the meaning. And then try and hear God's voice about, Lord, Lord, what are you trying to achieve through this? Because every trial we travel through, there's something he's trying to achieve within us. Is this a pruning? Is this a, a I don't know, God will talk to you and minister to you in it. And yet it feels so unfair. I get it. And we weep together, but we do not weep like the unbeliever because our hope is in the coming of the King. Let's pause. Dear family, Can I encourage you that God knows what you're going through at the moment? Can I encourage you to seek what God is doing within you? To learn some very deep lessons through your journey? Can I encourage you to try and not let the why consume you? And can I encourage you to trust God? And that the greatest answer 
is found in Christ Jesus. The cross and the resurrection. Lord, minister to us. Remind us that you are so good. You are so beautiful. You are so amazing. Holy Spirit, rest on this dear congregation and fill us afresh with trusting hope for bodies here that are ill. Rest on them and minister to their bodies. For broken relationships that need healing, rest on them and minister to them. For all areas of life, rest on us, Lord, please. Help us. Because sometimes we feel, gosh, Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Let's stand together.